Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, we speak to Charles Emerson, whose article, The Future's Bright, The Future's Russian, is the cover story of our October issue. Charles speaks with our editor, Paul Lay, who begins by asking him about the French economist Edmund Terray and his predictions for Russia in the 20th century. It's worth remembering that the French were political allies of Russia in 1913, so perhaps we should expect a French economist to be particularly um, confident about Russia's future. But Edmond Thierry was not the only uh, European who thought that, for example, by mid-century, Russia's population would have expanded to maybe 343 million, 344 million. Um, he, was, he saw a country that was undergoing great uh, change in terms of its uh, industrial development. Uh, and basically, he was describing what we would now view as being a, a rapidly growing, uh, emerging market economy with all the kinds of problems that go along with that, uh, problems of governance in particular. Um, but he certainly didn't see a country on the verge of social revolution, he saw really an emerging economic and therefore political superpower. And what did he and other optimists base their forecasts on? Well, in large part, they, they, they based their forecasts on the, on the immediate past. Um, Russia had, of course, over the previous decade, um, been defeated by Japan in war and been through uh, the 1905 revolution. Um, but despite that, and the uh, economic progress of the Russian Empire was very, very marked. And the expectation was that this would continue. Indeed, the economic progress of the, of the Russian Empire had to some degree accelerated over the years just before 1913. So the anticipation of Edmond Thierry and others, including uh, German military strategists at the time, was that this was a process which um, would now continue indefinitely into the future. If you like, the, the problems of 1904, 1905 were being overcome. And what was the reason for this good governance? Because the stereotype of late Tsarist Russia is that of an ill-run feudal state, rather backward uh, in comparison with the other European powers at the time, particularly Germany, France, Britain. Um, what was the state of governance there? Well, I mean, this was the chief weakness of the Russian Empire, uh, as it is in many ways often seen as being the chief weakness of many uh, emerging market economies was governance. And there is this disconnect which comes through, I hope, in the article between the economic and social dynamism of Russia uh, and the problems of the regime, the problems of government, the problems of actually a, a government which is rather 
sclerotic in its management of, of Russian affairs. And for me, a, a good example of that is this rather uh, wonderful biography of Nicholas II, which is published in 1913, um, which is the tercentenary of the, of the Romanov dynasty. Uh, and it includes a chapter called The Imperial Worker. And it describes Nicholas II in glowing terms as being, you know, he keeps his office very neat. Uh, he knows all about regimental histories. And this is intended as a, basically it's intended as a hagiography. But if you read between the lines, what you're seeing is a, a czar who really isn't quite up to the job. He's very diligent, but he's not up to the job. And worse than that, uh, he actually interferes in the processes of imperial government and acts rather as a break on Russia's governmental modernization. And so that, if you like, is the key weakness of the Russian Empire, the weaknesses of its, its government uh, in administration, and also, of course, the political conflict between Duma uh, and Tsar. But there were politicians, uh, leading senior politicians there, who saw another vision of Russia. There were, but it was always an uphill struggle against the Tsar. I mean, the, 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 the struggle between uh, Duma and uh, Kors, between um, appointed ministers uh, and the Tsar himself, was one of the, the chief weaknesses of, of the Russian regime. Um, these days, the current president of the Russian Federation, uh, Vladimir Putin, um, looks back at, at Stolypin in particular, um, who was um, the chairman of the Council of Ministers in Russia until his assassination in 1911, uh, as being a, a great forward-looking leader of, of Russia. Um, so th 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 there were members of the political class who, who certainly saw a, a bright future for Russia, but they felt themselves to be frustrated by the power, if you like, by by the court and by the Tsar himself. One of the prominent figures at that court, um, at least in uh, the popular mind, is Rasputin. But you'd rather play down his role. Well, you know, a lot has been written about Rasputin, um, and there's a lot of myth-making around Rasputin um, in, terms of in, in, terms of in, in terms of his influence. Certainly, he had a great personal influence on the Tsar and on the Tsar's family. Um, because, of course, he was viewed as, as saving the Tsar's son or helping to mitigate the effects of the Tsar's son's um, dreadful illness. Um, but whether he was really the power behind the throne, um, guiding Russian policy in very specific, uh, on very specific measures, that seems far, far more, more doubtful. There's actually not very much evidence for that. Uh, and so I, I suggest that, that Rasputin's, the danger that Rasputin really posed to the Russian regime is not that of sort of pushing it down a particular policy line with very specific advice, but more that he damaged the idea of uh, Tsarist government in Russia by appearing, by making the Tsar appear uh, naive, essentially, and by suggesting that at court there are all these machinations going on, really private, personal machinations going on, which the Tsar uh, seems, seems unaware of. Uh, and it's, that, so that it's undercutting... The, the support for the idea of the Tsarist regime, where I think uh, Rasputin is, is, most, uh, is most dangerous. And were there aristocrats, uh, members of the ruling class close to the Tsar, who recognised these, who were pro-reform? Uh, absolutely. There, 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 there were some. I mean, there were, for, I mean, for example, in Britain during the Industrial Revolution, there were a large number of aristocrats who, uh, who invested in, in industry, who invested in canals, etc., and who became part of the Industrial Revolution, which... Uh, initially, some of them thought might actually entirely displace them. Uh, in in the case of Russia, that was that was less common, um, but there were aristocrats who were also 
um, uh, investing in the in, in the in the industrial revolution which Russia herself was going through at that time. Uh, there were others, of course, who were firmly opposed to any kind of political innovation uh, and who saw uh, industrialization, urbanization as really cutting out from underneath them foundations of their own local political power. Um, but I think that was also beginning to change. And how much was, uh, was the reformist view of a future Russia influenced by what they'd seen in the West, in other countries, in other industrializing countries? Well, I mean, it, in, in many cases, Russia felt itself to be following the West, to be catching up with the West. Um, I, I use a, a newspaper article, um, uh, an interview with uh, Sikorsky, who is uh, the designer of, most prominent designer of Russian aircraft at that time. And he speaks about Russia still using foreign models a bit too much to, 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 to design Russian aircraft, a bit like, you know, the Chinese today, you know, using knockoffs of various cars or other vehicles in their own industrial uh, revolution. So he talks about this, but at the same time, what he's saying is, look, you know, yes, we use too many foreign models, but we're catching up, but we're developing our own technologies. We're developing our own industrial capacities at home. And he says something very interesting, which is it, it, it sort of chimes, uh, it resonates with uh, with the, uh, the audience, I think, because it's, it's like what Khrushchev says in the 50s. He, Khrushchev said, we will bury you economically. And Sikorsky in 1913 is saying, we will, we will overtake them. We will overtake the West. Um, so there is this idea that Russia is becoming more technologically self-sufficient, more financially self-sufficient, and that this will, this will drive Russia forward into the future. And we also see a tremendous uh, cultural flourishing in Russia at this time as well. Yes, and the, 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 the cultural flourishing is, is somewhat more, more problematic. Um, in that it's, it's, it's not at all all driven by this uh, grand idea of the Tsarist state at all. In fact, very often it's, it runs um, quite counter to it. Um, there's a, a very famous production in 1913 in St. Petersburg's uh, Lunar Park of uh, a, a, a futurist play, a Russian futurist play, um, called Victory Over the Sun. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's all about dissonance. Uh, it's all about... Uh, well, victory over the sun, as the name suggests, it's sort of victory over the symbol of 19th century um, progressivism, if you like. Uh, and so there is this rather more um, problematic take on the future, um, rather more fragmented, dissonant, if you like, take on the future, which is emer emerging from the subterranean cafes and bars of St. Petersburg uh, in 1913. Now, I suppose we could say that the great flourishing of that period, as far as Russian culture goes, Stravinsky, the uh, Ballet Russe, takes place elsewhere. Of course. Well, it, it, well, it, well, well, it does, but that, but that's, that, that in itself is, is, is fascinating, that Russia has become a, an exporter of culture, but not just the sort of um, chocolate, chocolate box image of, of, of Russian culture, but also, you know, avant-garde, yeah, yeah. uh, modern Russian culture. So if you're in, you know, if you're in, if you're in Paris in 1913, listening to uh, the Rite of Spring first being performed, um, then what you're hearing is, on the one hand, a Russia which is very, very close to the earth, close to the land, a very ancient Russia, because that's what the Rite of Spring is partly about. But it's presented in a very, very modernist, striking form. Uh, and so Russia, culturally in the West, managed to be both, you know, an ancient nation, but at the same time viewed as a harbinger of modernity. I'm always wary of counterfactuals, Charles, but what do you think would have happened or what would have been a likely scenario 
Had the First World War not happened? Well, I think that without going too far down the counterfactual path, it's relatively easy, I think, to suggest that um, the revolution of 1917, or at least the, um, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917, probably would not have happened. Um, so that's one thing I think one can say with a, with a, with a relatively high degree of certainty. But one could, what one can say with almost complete certainty is that had there not been the First World War, the Russian population and the Russian economy would have been much, much larger 10 or 20 or 30 years later than it in fact turned out to be. Well, thank you, Charles. Your um, article, Charles Emerson's article, The Future's Bright, The Future's Russian, is our cover story in the October edition of History Today. Um, Charles's book... 1913, The World Before the Great War, is a tremendous read. It's been greatly enjoyed in the office here. And um, thank you for that. It's uh, it's a genuinely uh, different take, I think, on the popular widespread perception of Russia on the eve of the First World War. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you very much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.